0: And I had this uh, senior named Mike. He said, look, your demeanor and energy are way too cool for politics. I really think that kids are going to dig it. Oh, you know, you're right. Like, I really am energetic and I love talking about stuff. And he was like, you should probably, like, put that to good use with kids.
1: Hi, I'm Arielle Charnas and this is In House, my podcast about all the happenings in my life. Whether it's fashion, entrepreneurship, marriage or mom life, you'll hear it all right here on In House. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of In-House with me, Arielle Charness. On these special guest episodes, I love having my cousin, entrepreneur, and proud mama, Candace Miller with me. This will be another episode for all the parents listening as Candace and I are joined by Dr. David Anderson. He is the vice president of school and community programs team at the Child Mind Institute. He specializes in evaluating and treating children and adolescents with ADHD and behavior disorders and he also has broad experience with anxiety and mood disorders. Plus, he is devoted to ensuring that patients receive innovative, cutting-edge care tailored to each family's specific needs. A true mental health and wellness champion. Hi, Dr. Anderson. Hi, Dr. Anderson. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: So why don't we just start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself and what drew you to working with children and everything about your career?
0: Sure. Uh, that's that's A loaded I was, question. I was going to say, what, my work and then what drew me to working with children are two different questions. No, what drew me to working with children was actually that in college, I got involved in student government uh, early on at Dartmouth, and I had this uh, senior named Mike, who was an incredibly inspiring figure and kind of helped to mentor me in the early stages of my career. He said, look, your demeanor and energy are way too cool for politics. I really think that kids are going to dig it. And that, that was literally like the moment where I was like... Oh, you know, you're right. Like, I really <laughs> am energetic and I love talking about stuff. And he was like, you should probably, like, put that to good use with kids. And so I ended up joining his mentoring program. He was recruited. Wow. And I spent, like, a couple of years in, like, nonprofit mentoring world. I then went on to kind of be one of the, the founding directors in the summer camp that he had as part of that organization. And then from there into a degree in clinical psychology and uh, working with kids who, who needed help kind of the most was where I, I went and right. you know the, the other major threat in my career is just working with kids who otherwise wouldn't have access to a lot of mental health resources because that program was working with kids living in low-income housing communities in the northeast then uh you know i was working uh, in new york when i did my doctorate then in la only with foster and adoptive populations and then now back at the child mind institute where i run our school and community programs that focus on Uh, school districts and schools where students are at least 70% or more on federal reduced or free lunch. So we focus on kind of schools that otherwise might not have a lot of mental health resources.
2: Can you just tell on the audience where the Child Mind Institute is located just so that they know like the different locations throughout the city? And what it is is.
0: Sure. These are these are fantastic <laughs> softball questions because I love talking about the Child Mind Institute. Now, the, the Child Mind Institute, we're a, we're a national nonprofit. We have uh, headquarters in New York and in San Francisco. And what we focus on is clinical care, education, and research. So What we do through clinical care is we have practices around both our New York and San Francisco offices uh, that treat people who are able to come into the office uh, with evidence-based care for anxiety disorders, mood disorders, behavior disorders, and then neuropsychological evaluations, and then the team that I direct, the School and Community Programs Team, actually goes out to schools in the community and provides direct services, and then also does professional training for schools in New York and California, and then in partner districts across the country, to kind of increase capacity and make it so that schools feel like they can address the mental health needs of their students. Uh, on the research side, we, our research focuses on biological markers of mental health and learning disorders. So we're kind of on this uh, search that's likely to take a number of years yet, In looking for kind of brain based, blood based, uh, you know, some sort of biological kind of marker of mental health and learning disorders. And then our research also focuses on open science and big data. So all the data we collect is shared openly the moment we have it, and people publish a lot more on our data than we actually publish on our own data. And then for public education, you know, we focus on building out a website, childmind.org, that has hundreds of articles for parents and for educators uh, on all kinds of different mental health topics. Uh, and then also on creating resources and engagement through social media and media uh, around science-based messaging uh, in child and mental health. So that's why I like doing things like this.
2: I'm a big fan of Child Mind Institute. I've, um, I've researched it for my own children. So I was just wondering how... Do you know when a child is has a disorder versus going through a phase, you know, like a, a childhood phase that they're going to grow out of? Like, how do you Great distinguish question. between the phase and the disorder? And going along with that question, what would you say are like these pivotal ages where you see the, these disorders really like pre- are prevalent at the time that they come out?
0: So- The easiest way to back up this question for a second is is to talk about mental health parity in our society. One of the issues that we have, and this is to quote a parent that I work with this week, is that, you know, really every kid should be assigned both a therapist and a pediatrician at birth, in the sense that they need both. Um, So the the main reason why we get the question of the dividing line between a disorder and a non-disorder is because of the stigma around mental health care. It's that we want people to actually treat us as therapists as People they can just come and talk to about any norm, any concern, a kind of along the spectrum from what might be typical for a kid, what might be a developmental phase, to something that might be a mental health or learning disorder. To be sure, it's not as if parents tell us I only need a guide when things get really bad. Most parents, you know, if they're honest with themselves, will say that they have no idea what they're doing from pretty much day one. So they would really love that guide. So our focus is on kind of destigmatizing this idea between disorder and non-disorder. It's that. Kids have lots of things that come up during development. The main differentiator of a mental health disorder, because there aren't biological markers of mental health disorders, is an, is an acronym called FIDI. It's frequency, intensity, duration, impairment. It's that when we're defining mental health and learning disorders, we're defining them by a lot of symptoms that can occur typically. In the sense that like, if you're diagnosing depression, people can get sad. People can have moments where they're eating where their sleep patterns change. People can feel kind of hopeless. Maybe they don't feel like they're getting as much enjoyment out of activities they really liked. All of those things can be completely normal. They can be phasic in the sense that like, a kid just realized they don't like basketball as much as they thought, or maybe painting wasn't as rewarding as they once thought. Or, you know, there might be reasons why a kid has sleep difficulties at certain ages. But it's taking all those symptoms together and trying to say, okay, is this happening really often? is this happening really intensely is this happening you know for a while and at the same time how is it affecting the kid either in school or socially or at home and that's normally where we reach that threshold of diagnosis and so there there's no great kind of secret to it it's more that you know you may get families who come through the door where their report of a kid's symptoms, they may not report the symptoms are impairing, and we still may treat them, or they may report the symptoms are hugely impairing, but that may also be a function of certain things that are going on in the family. Either way, we want people to just realize that kind of we can help regardless of where it falls in the continuum. To your other question about when these things emerge, uh, what we know is that 75% of mental health and learning disorders emerge before adulthood. So most of this stuff happens during the early childhood and teenage years, and then just has different manifestations when people are adults. So that's the other reason why you know, we want to confront the research that shows that parents often wait years from the moment they think something's wrong to the moment they consult a mental health professional, again, because of stigma or because of the fear that maybe uh, their child might be given a treatment that they, they're not in favor of or that their child might feel pathologized. And those are all the kinds of things we're hoping to change.
1: What advice do you have for parents who are taking their children for evaluation? Because I'm sure it's a very anxious process.
0: The the toughest thing you know, that we see for any parent, I think is the wrestling match that happens when you finally take your child for an evaluation and you want to be honest with a practitioner, but you're worried that maybe by saying something, you're going to overemphasize your child's symptoms or make it so they're pathologized or get them a diagnosis that they don't really have. And that's where what we hope is that parents can share with us, both what they're seeing and the kind of emotional valence of it all, you know, what they're experiencing alongside of it and what the reservations are, because again, the, the Most of the clinicians I've met in my life, they're not looking to necessarily be right or make the perfect diagnosis or anything like that. And during an evaluation, they're looking to get to know a family, to have some degree of certainty about what we're ruling in and what we're ruling out in terms of what we're treating, and to be able to give somebody some guidance about something that can give them hope and work within at least a certain amount of time.
1: So the time that you should consider bringing your child in to be evaluated is when you notice that the behavior is becoming intense and happening for a long period of time, correct?
0: That may be too late. Early intervention is always better. This is what we find in general across all medical and psychological science. Right. The earlier that we get in there, the better. And oftentimes, if something is just about to emerge, you know, we're more likely to be able to treat it effectively than after it's become, you know, uh, significantly complicated.
1: But so do you see, like, success with speaking to, like, f- five-year-olds and, like, at that young of an age if, you know, they're dealing with anxiety or
0: – So it's a really good question.
1: It's like, well, I, that's how I think. I'm like, why can't I just talk to my kid? Like, she doesn't really tell me anything. I don't know. I, I'm curious.
0: Of course. Well, that's that's the difficulty with the understanding of the science uh, that goes along with treating uh, psychological health in young children. It's right. that. You know to be sure there is a role for therapists who for one reason or another provide an emotional space for a child to kind of process their experiences and talk through what they're going through there's an absolute role for that within our field there's been too much of an emphasis on that the idea that if you're the parent of a five-year-old and you think your five-year-old is suffering your job is to drop them off at the therapist's office They play, you know, not exactly what they're doing in that office. You get your kid back and supposedly healing is happening. That's a broken and non-scientifically based model Um, in the sense that, again, play and connecting with a kid can be an aspect of any treatment, but it's often incomplete when we really look at the science. If you're treating mood or anxiety or behavior or trauma in children, especially young children, most of what you're doing is trying to consult with parents on what strengths they already have, build in skills to go alongside that parent's strengths, and make it so the therapy is working for the other 23 hours and six days. Sorry, I shouldn't say that in the opposite order. Six days and <laughs> 23 hours of the week outside of the, the hour that the kid or the family is meeting with the therapist. That's, that's really what leads to change. And it's also the story of the last 20 years of psychological research.
1: Do you have any online seminars? Like, I mean, I feel like every parent would want to learn how to like deal with the, with their children's anxieties or mood swings or sleep, you know, uh, t- terrible sleep habits, like things like that. There's so many parents that want to hear how to, you know, right. be better at home and deal with their children. So I'm curious if like you just do a general, I don't know, session where people could just tune in. and.
0: We absolutely do. So, you know, part of that is that, you know, what we try to catalog on on our website on childmind.org is we catalog when we're doing talks that are widely available to the public. So for example, you know, one of mine that, that I do two, two times a year is for Attitude, which is a, an organization for ADHD, where right. it's like a publicly available, you know, kind of talk to thousands of, of caregivers where you can talk about kind of evidence-based strategies for behavior. We also mm-hmm. do that in-house, though. We have trainings like uh, BEST, which is behavioral and emotional skills training for caregivers that we offer usually, you know, twice a month. And what we'll do is we'll offer it to groups of caregivers where we run through the entire curriculum of behavioral parent strategies in a day. Um, and we do something as well called PACT, which is a training for parents around supporting your children with anxiety. We'll, we'll run through that in a few hours.
1: I need this. Okay, I'm definitely
0: signing up. <laughs> Absolutely. And and I think there are also a lot of nonprofits in this space, other than us, like uh, just other than Child Mind, right. that really try to put together these sorts of talks for parents where it's saying like, look, You know, for a lot of parents, they'll be sitting there thinking, like, I don't understand, you know, I I tried to get my child a therapist, the the therapy didn't seem like it was kind of a fit, and you know, it didn't seem like much was changing, because to be sure, for for something like uh, an area that I specialize in, behavior, dropping your kid off with a therapist for an hour a week has been shown over and over, across decades of research, not to improve child behavior. The reason is that the child can form a great relationship with a therapist. They can be in my office with absolutely no accountability or stakes playing checkers and being like, hey, I really like Dr. Dave. I'm going to behave in this space. The reality is then, when I send them back home, their sister is still there and the food they don't like is still there and bedtime is required. And I didn't have to deal with any of that in the office. So right. the issue becomes, how do we get the information to parents that they need to be able to be effective in that space? And a lot of the treatments, for example, for behavior are focused on coaching a parent in vivo with their kid at those ages. Like we tend to do this very, you know, uh, we don't think of it as odd, but people who come and see it think of it as odd, but it's its called parent-child interaction therapy. And a lot of our clinicians will do this, where they'll be on one side of a one-way mirror and they will coach a parent while they play with their kid on certain That's strategies crazy. through the one-way mirror. And then the hope is that a parent reaches mastery in office in practicing those skills and then goes home and practices those skills with kids. That's so interesting.
2: So, you know, when you're looking for help for your child, whether it be for mood or anxiety disorder, or whatever, whatever disorder it might be, there's so many unknowns. And I think for a lot of parents who have children suffering from these disorders, they don't see an end in sight and therefore they become like very insecure with their decisions. So how do you tackle that and like give parents the confidence that they need to get through this and and feel empowered that they've chosen the right people
1: and know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel yes.
2: and then and know that there is right. that that this isn't going to go on forever and that their child isn't going to suffer forever.
0: I mean, the the process of building hope when people are really struggling and suffering is a complex one, but the some of the main things that we talk about are that you know for evidence based practice for for people who who are consulting research in childless and mental health, the purpose is to get the kid out of your office. Like I always tell kids that like. I'm excited to be their person throughout their development, but when they come with some sort of acute issue, there should be significant improvement within three months. If there isn't significant improvement within three months, I want them to fire me. Fire me. Like, I I should be fired. Because what most evidence-based practice will indicate is that over the course of about 12 to 20 weeks, you can really see significant improvement in symptoms. And sometimes, you know, the reason why you might not be seeing improvement might be because there are a lot of other factors that a family might be dealing with that make it so that we might need to elongate the time span because either the particular struggles the child is having are severe, or maybe there's a lot of other things going on in the family that are big stressors. But for the most part, if someone's regularly attending treatment over the course of that period of time, you should see significant improvement. And then for most kids, what I'll tell them is that I'm excited for you to return, you know, in your teenage years or in your college years. We can talk about romance, we can talk about, you know, launch issues, we can talk about figuring out how you're gonna afford your first apartment, all kinds of stuff where I can be more of a life coach or a relationship coach. But when we're really treating something acutely, the hope should be that we have strategies and a roadmap. We can say, look, this is the common arc. These are the skills we teach people. This is how it looks to practice these things, and this is what you can expect in terms of changes. If somebody's not telling you that, I wouldn't advise seeing them. And that's that's generally kind of where we go. And I think that there's a, a large part of our field that is there for adults for support, in the sense that an adult can see a therapist, and it can just be the you know, ups and downs of daily life. You come in, you talk about a partner, you talk about your boss, you talk about just, you know, your dog and why your dog doesn't seem to be learning the lessons that you want them to learn. And that's a great supportive space. Like people can get a lot of benefit out of that. But for kids, especially because there's so much wrapped up in a kid feeling like their parents might be saying there's something wrong with them or feeling like they're the identified patient in the family. Our job is to really make it so that we're working with an entire family in a short-term kind of way to get things to be better, or else we really kind of take another look at what's going on and, you know, what kind of things we can look at over time.
1: Are disorders, like anxiety disorders, are they genetic? Do you see that they're genetic?
0: So things are genetic. Things are environmental. Things are epigenetic in the sense that the environment can actually cause certain genes to be expressed more than others. Uh, and the, the reality is that for most of... Uh, mental health and learning disorders, there's some mix uh, of the two. Um, there are certain disorders that we know at the moment, or at least the science indicates, are more genetically linked than others. Psychosis, bipolar disorder, ADHD, have more of a genetic loading than uh, other disorders, for example. Um, but to be sure, you know partly because of assortative mating and the fact that humans choose mates who may share the very things that they struggle with, uh, you get people who choose partners, where if they struggle with anxiety, they may choose somebody who also understands that struggle and struggles with anxiety, which may increase the power of genetic loading for anxiety, that kind of thing. My wife and I both struggle with anxiety as kids. We then got together. We're just kind of on the lookout for the signs of anxiety in our own children, in our five and two year old, because we just figure like there's a pretty, uh, the force is strong with them in this area and we know that there's some genetic loading for anxiety. But for us, because my, I have the, the fortune of having also married someone with a, a PhD in psychology, um, you know, we have some good ideas about what to do about anxieties it presents in early ages to hopefully make things greater than our own stars. At the same time, full disclosure, I was raised by a psychologist and a psychiatrist. So I'm feeling like I already had a pretty good roadmap for the support that I needed.
1: Wow. <laughs> So I have anxiety disorder. I, I started at age nine. I was in therapy. And I know that my oldest daughter has it. Do you talk to your children about disorders? Like, is that appropriate if she doesn't even know what it is that she's dealing? Like, and how do I intervene so that she doesn't turn out like me who, I mean, I went to therapy, but obviously I don't think it worked, but to sort of just lessen it for her so that, you know, she can deal with it better and have more tools than I do.
0: So kids always do better when they're not in the dark. It's just that sometimes what can be really murky for us as parents is what information to share that's developmentally appropriate. Yeah. So in that age range, like, it might not be that we're sharing the DSM with a six-year-old. Like, I'm probably not <laughs> opening it up to my six-year-old being like, okay. So we talked about OCD. <laughs> then yeah. let's talk about social anxiety. Then we're going to talk about trauma. Like, it, it's probable that what we're trying to highlight is that at six, Most social-emotional learning is kind of targeting, like, understanding the range of emotions you can experience. Like, Inside Out is a good example, is a movie of, like, getting kids to understand the major, like, categories of it. That was well done. And then, you know, once you get kids to understand that, it's being able to kind of recognize their own emotions and then also recognize the intensity. And so at age six, what we might be saying to a kid is like, look, some people feel these emotions really intensely. And sometimes it's not even something that's in line with like what that situation is in the sense that like you've seen like I'm going to use my five year old as an example. He's a little nervous around dogs. I was petrified around dogs. Like to the point where my father used to joke when we were playing catch where he'd just say black dog and I would run into the house without looking like that level of, of being petrified. And it's something where I can say to my child when he's around a dog or sees a kid who might be much more afraid of dogs, it's getting an appreciation of that range of emotion. It's that I know you're nervous around dogs, but once you kind of get to know a dog or you're, you're around a dog, you can understand that, like, most dogs are nice and you're going to be able to pet this dog and it's good. For some people, even though most dogs are nice, a dog causes them to feel absolute panic. They may feel like they can't breathe. They may feel like they've got to escape the situation. And you'll get a six-year-old who kind of like nods along with that. Maybe they've experienced that, maybe they haven't. But what we say is like, and for people who experience that, we want to offer them help. I want to offer them strategies to help them calm down or to be just with them as they kind of ride out these big feelings. And it's like that level of you know explanation to a kid. Same thing for a kid going to therapy. We wouldn't necessarily be like, listen, you have a specific phobia, of the population has at least one, it's just yours is particularly impairing, and that's why you're gonna go see Dr. Dave. We wouldn't necessarily give that experience. We'd say, look, we want Dr. Dave to be able to help you. So a lot of times, like for example, if we're treating that in in therapy, we tell parents, your party line is to say to them, we're gonna help you to be less afraid of dogs because the reality is that most dogs are nice. And what that'll look like is a series of steps. The therapist is going to show you pictures of dogs, videos of dogs. Then you're going to meet some nice dogs, maybe some small ones, then maybe some big ones. And that's just going to be kind of how you progress. And the kid might be like, no, I'm not going. And our answer is just meet the person. See what it's like.
2: With the pandemic, and I'm sure you're seeing a ton more kids in your practice because of all the different disorders that I'm sure have risen. How are you tackling that? And do you think we're going to be seeing more and more of this? and what are the disorders that you predict we will be seeing more of from this time with our children?
0: You know, the the pandemic has uh, exacerbated mental health symptoms across every level of our population. You know, the most disturbing trends are amongst uh, communities of color and uh, communities uh, that were uh, low income at the start of the pandemic, um, in the sense that depending on what kind of resources you had and depending on your access to kind of support uh, mental health care, whether or not uh, your family needed to be essential frontline workers that went in person, things like that. um, You know, it's, it's one of these things where we've all experienced a similar stressor, but that stressor has had a decidedly different impact on different sectors of the population. So what we know is that as a population, research during the pandemic has shown significant increases in stress, anxiety, uh, depressive symptoms, things like that. These things have been most acute in communities where there's been financial insecurity, where there's been housing insecurity, where there's been increases in domestic conflict or family conflict. Um, And in particular, in now the near 150 American children, 150,000 American children who've lost a parent to the pandemic, or even stats that just came out this morning, the almost 5 million children worldwide who've lost a parent at some point uh, during this pandemic. So if we want to talk about the, the effects of the pandemic, there's kind of this like high level, like stress that's affected everyone. And then there's also these devastating effects for certain sections of the population. So it, it's no wonder that this past fall, you know, most psychiatric associations, the U.S. Surgeon General, us and, and any other organization involved in, in mental health came together in declaring that we have a, a crisis, a national crisis in child and mental health. That crisis is multifaceted. So in the sense that, like, we see these huge increases in, you know, attempted and completed suicides, uh, hospitalizations and hospital visits among uh, youth, um, increases in in stress kind of endorsed across the population, there are many driving factors for this. From increasing income disparity, uh, differential impact in communities of color, to, you know, things that are uh, pretty obvious, just in the, the sense of, like, the loss that we've experienced over the course of the pandemic and then also the lack of access to mental health care. The reality is that with movements like deinstitutionalization that occurred uh, decades ago, which for listeners was the, the kind of movement to make sure that people were not in psychiatric hospitals for a long extended period of time without the opportunity to kind of return to a normal life, the issue is we never built anything in between. So what you have across our society is a lot of access to mental health services for affluent populations, not a lot of access uh, to particularly evidence-based mental health um, for people who are of lower income or you know lower means, and you know not a lot of insurance coverage for what's needed for mental health. A lot of stigma associated with getting care, particularly in, in certain communities where there's uh, a lot of stigma just associated with kind of talking about emotions or talking about feelings or or psychological disorders, and so there are a lot of aspects of who we are as a society that unfortunately can be driving, uh, stress and mental health struggles, uh, you know, kind of into the stratosphere.
1: How can our audience keep up with you and, and follow your activities and everything?
0: But really, you know, childmind.org is the, the best place just because that, that also, to, to something we discussed earlier, it's more information on when we have free talks or things like that, uh, when we have books that have been written by members of our staff, when we have uh, outreach events that we might be doing or resources. Like, for example, uh, we just launched in January. Uh, the California Healthy Minds Thriving Kids project that was an initiative funded by the uh, governor and first partner of California, where we created 34 new videos and 60 skill sheets uh, for educators and caregivers to be able to teach uh, basic mental health skills at home, like deep breathing, uh, mindfulness, uh, you know, being able to kind of change thoughts to stress tolerance strategies, a lot of the stuff I've discussed during this, we created it in five to seven minute videos for elementary, middle and high school age populations and made it freely available at childmind.org slash healthy minds. So if anybody wants to watch after this 34 more videos of five to seven minutes in length, I mean, I got do stuff. I do. (laughs) The easier thing is like the skill sheets. We made those really visual. Like you can post those on the refrigerator and be like, okay, five-year-old, here's deep breathing right here. This is, you know, you don't even have to read it. You can see the visual.
1: Right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Anderson, for this incredibly insightful conversation. I think the listeners are going to be very grateful to have heard just everything about you, your career, and where we can find you and follow you. Thank you, Candace, for being my co-host again. And thank you to all the listeners out there. Please come back for more as we welcome new guests to the podcast. You can reach out to us with any questions about the podcast or who you want us to bring on next. Just DM us on Instagram at Something Navy. See you next week. That's a wrap for today's episode of In-House. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with more thoughtful discussions and amazing guests. Make sure you follow on Spotify and Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. And of course... Follow me at Ariel Charnis and at Something Navy. See you next week.